Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a molded pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard It made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 3-348 of the Run Run Live podcast. I ran a bit long last episode with Mike, didn't I? Yeah. Well, I was up against a deadline, so I didn't have time to edit it. I just let it slide. I'll try to do better this time. You may have noticed I started slipping cookies into the end of the shows after the outro. That's just to see if you're still listening. It's a test. No, a cookie is a in the lingo of the podcasting biz, is bloopers from the show that I find particularly engaging. Like last week, when I either wrote into my script or spell-checked into my script that Australopithecines had disposable thumbs. That's just too funny not to share. Today, we speak with Christy Joe. I just love that name. Don't you love that name? It's like something from a TV show. Christy shares some very good tips and tricks around her Power Foods Nutrition Plan. I read through her book, and it's quite sensible. I know this whole weight loss nutrition thing is a real challenge for so many people. There's just so much noise. So I thought we'd give you some points from someone who has been through it all and get her approach. I have been steadily losing weight as well. I wrapped up my 30-day plan at the end of August, but decided to keep going. So my training is going really well at the lighter weight, and I feel great. So I want to see where I can get to by the Portland Marathon next month. Last episode, I erroneously said I was down to 170 pounds. That was incorrect. What I meant was I was down to 175 pounds, which is still good because I started out around 185. I typically race around 180, and I'll max out on a (laughs) – in a really bad cycle, I'll max out around 200 So I'm currently in the low 170s with a body fat percentage in the 10s. And I track body fat percentage because it's a much better metric than weight or BMI. For example, a good range for a guy my age is in the low teens for body fat percentage. And my scale does it automatically. I mean, it's an approximation, but it's close enough. It's a good indicator for healthy weight loss. All that aside, what I'm really pleased with is how much better my workouts feel and how well my heart is responding. And that's how I define feeling healthy. And that's what I'm going for. We have a wonderfully hewn, well-crafted, and individually designed for your specific needs show for you today. It's a thing of beauty, this show. I had it handcrafted by Virgin Baby Koalas just for you. In section one, I'll answer some rapid-fire running questions. In Section 2, I'll talk about the Wapak Trail Race I ran over Labor Day weekend. And I was wondering if anyone was going to write in about my math problem when I told the story of the store clerk in Atlanta. And I wasn't disappointed. For the record, I know that when you combine a 30% and a 20% discount, you can calculate it two different ways. So it could be either 50% or 44%, depending on how you apply the discounts. Glad to see you're paying attention. Makes me feel loved. Thank you for joining me on my journey. You don't have to. I'm doing it because I like doing it. It allows me to practice my creativity and my production skills. It forces me to think critically about topics. It allows me to interact with people I find interesting. And I explore topics and people that are interesting to me. And that's why I can keep producing for nine plus years and 350-ish shows. 
because essentially I'm doing it for myself. And at the same time, whenever I create anything, I think about the audience. That's part of the craft. And I ask the question, why do you care? And this keeps me from getting too wrapped up in myself and allows me to add value. If you don't care, then I'm just an annoying old dude that you sat next to on a long flight and won't shut up even though you put on your headphones and pretended to sleep. Yeah, I don't want to be that guy. I do have a membership option to defray the cost because I am a capitalist at heart and I'm not a charity. (laughs) I'm working on a proper set of books, but as near as I can figure, I probably spend $1,500 a year on the podcast. So consider buying a membership. I'm still working on a separate iTunes feed for it. My guy in Nigeria can't quite figure out how to make the remote header calls work with my WordPress plugin, but I'm working on it. And if you've known me for any length of time, you know I'm patient. And when I decide to do something, it takes on the inevitability of a glacier. How about some useful running information? How about that? Instead of all this waffling on about the creative act, huh? How about that? Okay. So one of the workouts Coach gave me this week was a medium effort hill workout. And many times you will run longer or faster hill workouts for leg strength or as a type of speed workout or a threshold workout. That's not what this particular workout is for. This is a workout to practice form. Yeah, hills to teach yourself form. Hills are a great place to practice form because running uphill naturally forces you up onto your forefoot to take shorter, more rapid strides and to lift your knees. Hills bring the form to you. For the medium effort hill repeat, you're doing only 30 seconds. And that's long enough to get into your form, but not long enough to stress you. You do the workout at medium effort, so maybe a 7 to 8 on a scale of 1 to 10. And people always ask me, how steep should the hill be? And for these medium effort repeats, you can actually answer that question. When you get into the repeat itself, your form should be clean. If you're having to lean forward or struggling to get your feet turning over, the hill's too steep. When you run the repeat, focus on pushing off rapidly from the forefoot, push your hips forward, run tall, keep your chin up, your shoulders high and loose, your hands high and loose, focus on form, not on effort. Don't carry anything in your hands. Then you jog back down the hill and you don't start another rep until your heart rate settles down. I usually leave my bottle at the bottom of the hill. I stop when I get back, take a drink, walk a bit. When my HR falls under zone two, I'll ease into the next rep. I also find a stick and I scratch a tally mark into the dirt after every rep. And that makes a game out of it. And you know how I love my games. Do a set of 10 or 15 of these. These are great, especially if you're trying to clean up your form. Like I said, a 4 to 6% hill will automatically help you clean up your form. And I'm pretty sure the sign of that angle is the opposite over the hypotenuse, but I could be wrong. Practice makes perfect. Do your practice. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. So this is my running tips roundup. I had a bunch of little things ping-ponging around inside my head, so I figured I'd share them with you. So some quick, useful topics. First one, should I put my running shoes in the wash? So this time of year, your favorite pair of shoes may be getting a bit fraught with sweat and grime from your summer campaigns, and maybe... You ran a long trail run and got them muddy, dirty, and dusty, maybe a little blood. How do you clean them? Well, guess what? Most modern running shoes are made out of entirely synthetic materials. Water and soap isn't going to hurt them. Throw them in the washing machine. Put them in there with the rest of your laundry, unless they're super gross, and if you feel they would contaminate your undies, throw them in with some old towels. And before you throw them in, take out any orthotics or inserts. You can take the laces out too if you feel like it, but I usually don't. Then just, when they're done, set them out in the laundry room on a shelf or hang them by the laces from something to dry off. If it's a sunny day, I'll put them outside on the porch. They're synthetic, so they will dry very quickly. They're designed to not hold water. But don't ever put them in the dryer and don't use overly hot water on them. Just normal laundry conditions. 
And you'd think, well, won't it ruin my shoes or you know, ruin the longevity of the shoe? And the answer is no. I wash my shoes like this every few weeks. I wear a pair of shoes for maybe 500 miles or so on average, which only takes a couple months of running. So I'm going to wear out a pair of shoes long before a little soapy water kills them. Number two, what do I do to prevent cramps? Well, there's different kinds of cramps. For stomach cramps, you need to look at what you're eating prior to your run. Really, folks, this is just self-abuse. If it gives you stomach cramps, stop eating it. I find that I do my best in hard workouts or races by going in with a relatively empty stomach. If you're not fit, no amount of pre-race food cramming is going to make you fit. Don't overeat. Don't overhydrate. Just take some form of a little simple, easily digested nutrition about 90 minutes to an hour before the event, and you'll be fine. Now, leg cramps are a different matter. Leg cramps are due to your muscles misfiring and spasming. And why would they do this? Well, this happens when your nerves misfire. And your nerves misfire due to typically dehydration or loss of electrolyte or simply from overuse and trauma. The common cure for leg cramps is to make sure you keep your electrolyte levels up. And I do this myself by taking Endurolyte capsules, which are salt pills, essentially, designed for endurance athletes by, in this case, Hammer Nutrition. I take them strategically in a long event every one to two hours. And it depends on how I feel and how much I'm sweating. The more you sweat, the more salt you lose. So you get a feel for it after a while. And there are other brands of salt dabs you can use. There's plenty of them. There's lots of foods and exercise drinks and that sort of thing that have electrolytes in them you can try. There's natural foods like pickle juice that the triathletes use that have a high sodium content. And like I said, triathletes will drink pickle juice in their transition areas and they swear by it for preventing cramps. So if you're having leg cramps when competing, experiment with some of those foods or supplements and see what works for you. And I have two caveats for this discussion. First, leg cramps at the end of the day are due to trauma and overuse of the muscles. And I'm sorry to have to remind you of this constantly, but the best way to mitigate that trauma is to train well and be fit. All the supplements in the world won't help if you don't train well. So think about that first. And second, cramps can stem from actual physical maladies. If you're having problems and can't figure it out, go see a doctor. It could be something wrong with your body. Third question, uh, what should I eat right after my workout or my race? And this is something that is probably an opportunity for most people. When you stumble into the house, wet and steaming, from that 10-mile tempo run, what do you eat? Do you think, hey, I just worked out. Now I can have a reward and head for the hot wings, beer, and ice cream? Yeah, that's what I used to do. The problem there <laughs> is that right after a workout is a great opportunity to give your body some high-quality food that it can use to rebuild with. And the trick is that you should have these foods pre-made and ready to go because when you stumble into the house wet and steaming, you'll be too knackered most of the time to make anything. A really good and easy remedy for this is the smoothie. And there's a bazillion smoothie recipes online. If you have a blender, you can do this. I'll give you my recipe. Get your blender. Throw in the following. A couple cups of almond milk, a cup of berries, fresh or frozen, a banana, any other fruit you have hanging around, and grab a couple of leaves of spinach or kale. That's the base. Now, you can throw in optional crazy hippie vegan stuff like I do, which is a scoop or so of vegan protein powder, a tablespoon of flax seeds, a tablespoon of chia seeds, activated nutritional yeast, liquid chlorophyll, and you can top all this stuff off with some real fruit juice, not the fruit juice that they try to sell you, but real fruit juice, like 100% and some ice cubes, you blend it up for a long time, and not for nothing. But if you drink that after your workout, you will have superpowers by the end of the week. Just saying. Next question, should I run 100 miles? No, that's just stupid and needlessly self-abusive. I'm talking to you, Eric. 
Number, uh, what is this, four or five? Should I run in the rain? And the answer is yes, absolutely. I love running in the rain. Not in the lightning or in the storms, but the rain is awesome. I recommend it. That's it for now. Send me your questions or questions you've heard, and I'll do a mailbag section if I get enough. Cheers. And now for today's featured interview. All right. Christy Jo Hunt, how are you doing? I am doing so great. How are you, Chris? I'm a little tired. I had to stay up to watch the Patriots game last night. How did they do? I unfortunately did not catch it. <laughs> In true Patriots fashion, they won on the last play of the game at about midnight. Wow. So. Good for them. Actually, I think I saw this on the TV when I was training this morning. Was it kind of a long run that they made? No, in? no it was a uh, the other team missed the field goal with uh, 40 seconds left, so. Oh, well, yeah. nonetheless, they so, won. Great. So, Christy Joe, why don't you give me the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do and why we're talking? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to be on your podcast. I am a fitness nutrition specialist, certified personal trainer, and a mindset coach. I run an online business for four years now after, in 2012, coming to a point where I realized my disordered eating habits were really hurting me. And my whole life I have been fit. I've run a lot of races. I've trained very hard. I've been a dancer my whole life. And I always wanted to figure it out. But I didn't have the full scientific understanding of how nutrition and fitness worked And above that, the emotional and psychological ability to bring it all together to make me a better person. And now that I've figured it out, my personal journey is sharing that with as many people as will listen. So thank you for this opportunity to share. Sure. And like I was saying, I'm always interested in talking to people who have figured something out, right, have made a transition. And I think your story is super interesting because you had a lot of challenges, but you're obviously a very driven, very smart, very accomplished person. But even with all that, you were struggling with disease. You were struggling with just the mental aspect around nutrition. Absolutely. And I think that may be something we we miss, right? When we see people who are successful and driven, especially in athletics, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. So what were some of those challenges that you had to overcome when you were going through all this? I think it's not exclusive to women. Men definitely struggle with it as well. But the overriding feeling of needing to measure up to the body image of what's out there in the media. And with that comes these expectations or such of how we need to be eating. Now, because I wanted to mimic a lot of the bodies I was seeing that were out there in these athletes and on the magazines and I would go read all these books and try to implement what they were saying. And without the ability to understand adaptability for me and what would happen when my emotional triggers would come up, for those who don't know, an an emotional trigger is something that leads us to lose a little bit of our conscious decision-making ability. I believe the subconscious mind, which studies show is about 90% of our decision-making ability, and that's everything that lies under the surface. That's our conditioning over time, and only 10% is conscious that we're like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow through. So when an emotional trigger comes up, which could be loneliness, fatigue, stress, anger, any of these things that take away from that conscious ability then our subconscious programming will be defaulted to and take over. So what I didn't understand was I was going to all these conscious, again, that 10%, I was going to these conscious efforts to be on point nutritionally, be that awesome person. I wanted to reach that body, but I was not focusing on what contributed to the subconscious programming. So things like How do I view myself as a person? How do I view food in general? Is it good or bad? I now believe that there is no such thing as good or bad food, and I personally use a new vernacular. One of the biggest things I teach people is to change food from good or bad to calling it strategic or non-strategic foods, which we can only define those if we have a goal. So a lot of those things of how to manage when we experience those rough times in life, that's why people are always on again, off again, on again, off again with dieting, with fitness, with anything. 
when we can figure out those answers and stop getting caught up in our own cyclical behavior of sabotage, that's when those real answers come. There's a lot of things going on there. Let me try to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Now, the first thing to quote you, eating really isn't about food. Right. Eating's about mental. It's about thought patterns. It's about lifestyle, right? Absolutely. And people get into these binge and purge cycles. Like, I mean, you were in that and we've all been there. Yeah. Where you get really frustrated and you say, I'm going to do it. This is the week I'm going to do it. And I'm going to put my foot down and lose a bunch of weight. And all that does is sort of make the cycle worse yeah. because you get to the end of that and your mental takes over and you purge on the other side, right? Or, right. or binge on the other side. It actually makes it worse. So the starting point is not the food or the diet. The starting point is understanding how mentally you approach that nutrition and that life cycle. Yes, right? very well said. And with that, there's a little bit of psychology to understanding our own ability to apply ourselves to rewards or those incentivizing what most people call cheat meals. I, that word's forbidden in my vernacular. I use the word indulgence because cheat implies something negative. And that sets us up again subconsciously for on again, off again. It's a very black or white way of thinking rather than indulging is part of the plan. You're not doing anything wrong. And so you plan for your indulging ability. My whole life, I was told by the people around me that I just needed to be more moderate because they would see these cycles. They would see me going restrict, 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 and then go ham on the brownies, you know, and not just eat one or two, but be sneaking in there after everyone else has finished because I couldn't control that. But that was when I was in a mindset of being more of an abstainer. Now, these words, I got to give credit where credit's due. Gretchen Rubin, who runs a podcast called Happier, she's the one that first coined these. And I was able to listen to that and say, I wonder if we can start applying this towards the way I eat and the way I train people to eat. And once I began doing this, it has made a huge difference. So if we're someone that really just needs to stay away for quite some time, otherwise we are going to go crazy than being an abstainer and, and following that, which is maybe once a week, maybe twice a week, following that strategy is more advantageous than a moderator strategy. A moderator strategy is the person who needs that little bit every day. And so they set themselves up and they come up with a strategy where it's what I teach people to do is 20 to 30 grams of carbohydrates total. Whatever the food is, I don't care, but 20 to 30 grams total carbs. And that's it. That's what they can indulge in. And over time, what I have seen with myself from a former binge eater that definitely was an abstainer because I just couldn't control myself. But over time, I've actually trained myself to be a moderator. But that's taken time and that's taken effort. And so for a moderator to tell an abstainer, you just need to eat a little and enjoy it. It's a severe misunderstanding of how deep the psychological rooting goes into how we view food. Quite amazing. Yeah, and, and again, there's a lot going on here, right? So sure. The first thing is doing a little bit of self-awareness with any change. So you have to look and say, are you that person who hates their body? And a lot of people probably don't like looking at themselves in the mirror. Everybody's critical of themselves. And how do you feel about food? How do you feel about diet? That those mental triggers, identifying those, right? right. When does this happen? How does it happen? What are the emotions going in? And it's just like any other habit. If you can identify those triggers and then put a different pattern in place for that trigger, a more moderate pattern or behavior, you can beat a lot of that. And actually, it helps you sort of gamify it. And then the second part of that is say, okay, now that I figured this out, what are the tools? What are some simple methodologies to plug into that pattern, that new pattern that I want? Right. And a lot of people skip that self-awareness step and a lot of people don't have the tools or they're relying on the popular culture for the tools, which are just this particular area mm -hmm. is such a mess yes. in the world. <laughs> it's so fraught with emotion and lack of any actual understanding and opinion and dogma. It's just a tough place to go and say, I need help because you just feel like you're getting uh, bushwhacked, right? Yeah. So I just said a lot there. So let me have some specific questions. What are some of the tools that you're bringing to the table to help people replace the pattern? Great question. 
I wrote a book called The Power Foods Lifestyle, and in it is a totally new method of thinking about food that I created first and foremost for myself. I didn't intentionally start a business. It kind of happened by default once people were learning about what I had done to change myself. So in this, I help people come up with this particular budget. I call them peak ranges of certain macronutrients. For instance, we break it down to protein, carbohydrates, fats, and then I put vegetables in their own category. Yes, they're a carbohydrate, but they're a different type of carb than our higher carbohydrate sources like brown rice and yams and red potatoes and all of that. So once the learning curve of what portion of food equates to a P or a C or an F, once that initially is passed, then we can start to come up with these acronyms for how we eat. And so everyone that goes through my training begins to speak on a different level. When you say, what's your strategy of eating? I would say my strategy is five PVS meals and a PVC, which follows my workout. That is a representation of how to combine certain nutrient groups for an optimal experience in your body. Now, the cool part of having a nutrition strategy is that you have a whole ton of foods you can choose from, and it's not so much this diet. You leave the diet world, and you start to think strategically about the combination of foods. We don't count calories. It's an awareness, and it's a mental food budget, and it has saved me. I cannot track things in an app. I go crazy. And I know that there's a great demographic of people out there that know the obsessions and know how hyper-focused we can become on this. And it's terrifying. Once you're in that world and food consumes your thoughts from sun up to sun down, it's not a happy place. No, it's punishing. It's punishing to have to track all that stuff. And I think what I liked about your methodology is it's similar to a lot of the lower carb methodologies, foods in category A, foods in category B. You have your lists of foods and you combine them depending on what time of day. And and that makes it very simple for people. It's like a little uh, connect the dots puzzle. One of these, one of these, one of these. Exactly. And the key is, again, psychologically, not counting calories, but making sure you get the mix right. That's it. And making sure that the stuff you're putting into that mix is the whole food, the healthy stuff. Exactly. And giving ourselves, just on that note really quick, you know, realizing we want to primarily be choosing those power foods, those, those foods from the earth. But I'm really against the whole clean eating mentality because, again, that sets us up for on again, off again, black or white thinking. And so instead, it's no, when you need a non-strategic food, eat it strategically, pair it correctly with your anchor of a protein and veggie, keep it to the proper portion size. And it creates a whole new lifestyle of not fearing food, but thinking strategically. Right. And it keeps you from having to worry about the calories in, calories out. Yes. Which calories in, calories out will get you the first 10 or 15 pounds, but then you'll plateau. Yes. Because your body figures it out. Your body says, oh, you're on a restricted calorie diet. So therefore, I need to do the biochemistry needs to be different. And you can actually change the way your body responds to food by doing that for a long period of time. Absolutely. Your body becomes much more efficient. It figures it out. Your human body is an amazing oh, thing. Oh, it is. So getting the mix right prevents that starvation response, the glycemic response, all that. And the other thing I like about the way you laid this out is it's not one of those high-protein ketonic diets, <laughs> which I'm not going to argue dogma with anybody, but sure. that does, just doesn't seem healthy to me. And I'll just save 10 seconds worth on that. There is a small demographic of people that that way, that adaptation can be really good for. But I would say the majority of people, that's kind of a last resort approach. But unfortunately, it's used as a max fat loss approach in most people who shouldn't be on it. So I'm I'm glad we kind of share similar opinions on that. And you give some less animal protein options for Mm -hmm. people who are trying to get around that as well, which is good. Because that's one of the things I struggle with is getting the, the right mix of protein and fats. Because I grew up in the time when it was all carbohydrates. Oh, I'm a big carbohydrate guy. I love them. They're delicious. Right? My, my bu- <laughs> I don't have a problem with sweets or any of that stuff, but just regular old carbohydrates, fruit and veg. I love that stuff. And right. It's, it's pretty good. Okay. So you've been working with people now with this methodology 
one-on-one mm-hmm. and you've got your book out there. What have you seen? What's some of the feedback you're getting? What are some of the success stories? Oh, wow. High <laughs> cholesterol drops so quickly once we get blood sugar stabilized and once we start to eliminate number one, sugar, number two, We are getting rid of processed foods, which those are rife with our soybean oil, hydrogenated vegetable oils. These are our two top contributors to high cholesterol. So I love seeing those numbers come down. Love seeing the reversing of type 2 diabetes. And a lot of people say, wait, what? But yeah, I mean, type 2 diabetes is onset through your nutrition. And so when we can really learn how to stabilize blood sugar, which is the controlling of what will cause blood sugar to go up, which is carbohydrates and sugar. And it's not so much, okay, stay away from them. It's no, learn how they work and respect them and help anchor that. These small little principles can be very, very helpful. Above all, I think the best part of what I do, because I work with all types of demographics, whether they're bodybuilders, whether they're very overweight, whether they are binge eaters, emotional eaters, or I've even worked with people with anorexic tendencies. And realizing that nutrition principles, when we can take this mindset of they're all adaptable, and whenever we hear a nutrition principle out there in this crazy mismatch and misinformation rife world, instead of saying, is that right or is that wrong? What we should be saying is, is this applicable to me? And if so, how can I begin adapting this in my life? I love that my people become critical thinkers. They learn how to ask the real questions rather than take yes or no stock answers. They know I will never give them that. If they say, can I have this? I say, let's think about it. What's it composed of? What is the strategy for your body? What are you learning about these principles? And when we can begin to think like that, that is the game changer for every person out there. Yeah, and uh, it's very individual specific. That's the other thing that people miss is they're looking for a broad brush solution. And what you'd like to give them are what you're calling strategies or tool set, right? A kit that says, apply these to you and see what you get. Right, exactly. I I love the word you say, toolkit. That's exactly it. Because it's very individual. If you look at somebody like me, for instance, I'm a male. I'm sitting right now at 174 pounds and I work out seven days a week. That's a different calorie load, a different body fat percentage than a woman of a different age with less activity or whatever. I'm going to be eating third more calories a day than a woman of the same condition, right? Exactly. It's individual to you. Very good. This is a very hard thing to do because you got to get all these things right with the mindset and then you have the tools to execute the mindset. If you got somebody who's really struggling, who has all these combinations of problems with buddy dystopia or whatever they call mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah. They they have binge and purge. They don't have the right tools. They're confused. They're depressed. What's the first step? As I run a course that helps people with this binge eating and cyclical behavior, the very first week what we work on is the awareness and identification. That can be a really hard thing for people to admit that they're experiencing some behavior that's not healthy and it's time to change. Sometimes we get so comfortable being uncomfortable that we don't realize we have the power to take control. And so the one stepping back from ourselves, I like to think of taking a third party unbiased view. I I like to think of floating up above oneself and looking down on the situation without any bias and saying, okay, what is going on in logical explanations? So then when a person can do this, they see, oh, right, there's a trigger going on. This person is stressed. This person is not sleeping enough. They're referring to themselves, of course. They're realizing there's all these things going on that they actually have the power to begin making some changes. So we start addressing those. We start making lists and saying, what are these things we do have the power over? Oftentimes, it's a break in something in our life that is causing us to weaken our resolve. There's one keystone thing, one keystone emotion or keystone habit or keystone food that you can focus on. If you pull that out, the rest will sort of domino behind it. Yeah, exactly. And so if we can pull that out and begin focusing on it, then we begin to learn and expand from there. I love when people set their goals 
to overcome the greatest obstacle of the prior week. Every Sunday, I tell my people, set an alarm in your phone. It needs to go off every Sunday, and that's when you say, what have I done well? What are my triumphs? And what are my obstacles? What's holding me back from being the person I want to be in nutrition, fitness, mindset, and spiritual? I like to work in those four categories. They work really well together. And then when we identify that obstacle, we set a very laser-focused, specific goal to overcome it. That's our starting point. If someone's experiencing these types of behaviors and tendencies, I wouldn't say, you just need to follow this meal plan. Oh, no, worst advice ever. We say, let's yeah, start identifying. I was talking last week about people using 30-day plans this way, mm-hmm. right? If you can identify one or two habits and just work on those for 30 days. And it kind of turns it into a game. Mm-hmm. And you can get that positive momentum, right? You're doing the same thing with your approach and your and your meal planning, too, because you're locking them in for the first month or so to say, just do this. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say on that whole game thing, as adults, we need to remember we need rewards. We need incentives. And we shouldn't necessarily make those a food-based reward. Right. Setting ourselves up for, like, I love to go shopping for new gym clothes, or I love to give myself a pedicure, and earning those things rather than just expecting everything to happen in your life. And when you put forth the behavior and the, the focus and the effort, it's really fun to earn those rewards. So that can be a cool system for people to start thinking about. Yeah, you know what? My biggest reward, I just dropped, like, maybe 10 pounds, right? Not a lot for yeah. me. But this time of year, it's so hot some days. Mm -hmm. Being able to go outside and run without my shirt on and not worry about it was a giant win for me Mm -hmm. in the last month. That's amazing. uh, How's that feel, though? How's that feel, though, to be able to have that confidence? Oh, it feels great. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. So one of the things I notice with these sort of 30-day habit plans, whether it's sleep or alcohol or nutrition, whatever you're doing, there's this time period around seven to eight days, somewhere in there, where it's like coming off a drug addiction. It's awful. (laughs) And I think people have to realize that. And I think that's where a lot of people, they lose it. They give up. Right. Because it's just awful. Your body almost is detoxing at that point. For example, in a diet plan where you're switching to a good mix. Yeah. So what? how do you help people through that? Yeah, it's rough. I mean, the, the biggest thing you can do is try to minimize the, the obligations in your life during that time. Because you do, if you can sleep more, that's your best tool. Secondly is making sure you're getting plenty of water. That has to be high on the priority list. And it's amazing how many people aren't getting at least 70 ounces of water per day. That's a problem. And so starting there, next This one's a little bit out of the box, and I wouldn't recommend it for everyone, but if there is someone out there that maybe this can benefit, I'm nervous to share it, but I'm going to, especially if it's coming off a lot of high caffeine. I work with a lot of people who are doing two, three, maybe four energy drinks a day, tons of coffee, and that's what's getting them through. We don't want to just cold turkey. I really recommend not doing that because that's really rough on your body. But starting to wean yourself down, you can actually take a simple caffeine supplement tablet. And they often come in 200 milligram tablets. And so you have a very regimented weaning off cycle. So maybe for four days, you cut it in half. And then for three more days, you then reduce that by half again until you're down to The goal would be zero, but definitely under 200 milligrams a day is ideal. With the sugar thing, are you going to experience headaches? Are you going to feel that fog and missing it and perhaps even some digestive issues? Absolutely. That happens every day. I have a 10-day power-up where I help people's bodies do this. And if they're coming from a high-carbohydrate, high-sugar background, they do. They kind of have some tummy trouble in the runs for a few days. And usually by day four or five, things start to clean up again. They feel so much better. And I would just say with that, let it run its course, but hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. And remember that you've got to train your body. Like you said earlier, the body is powerful. And so we remember that we're helping our bodies evolve. We've conditioned them to a certain thing and then you change the premise of that. Of course, it's going to have a different response. So stay the course and allow your body to evolve. Be patient, be persistent. It's almost like you have to treat yourself like a child. You have to be the adult, the the spirit inside your body and train your body. That's what I love. Train it, condition it. Yeah, but I find it fun too because you're discovering new things. You're like, 
Yeah. Oh, wow, look at this. Yeah. I stopped drinking caffeine. Now it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and I can't keep my eyes open, right? Right. <laughs> or I'm starving to death, and I don't know why, right? So you see your body, again, with that detachment, like you said, looking at yourself as an experiment, you can go, huh, look at that. Yes. Right? Oh, and those little uh, aha moments are so cool, especially when people do this for the first time, and they're like, I didn't know my body responded like that. It's exciting. Yeah. And then that goes all the way back, and this is how we'll wrap it up, Christy Joe. That goes all the way back to how you introduced your book where you said, wouldn't it be nice to be in control, right? Yeah. And by having this, by looking at, oh, I pull this string and this happens, that gives you the toolkit to be in control of your own body. And then that makes everything special. It does. Powering our bodies, it just is a mindset, and it's a change of the view of oneself and saying, you know what, I'm worth it. Not in an egotistical way, but in a value, realizing if we're going to go out and be a value to this world, we've got to have the energy and the longevity to support that. And that's what I yep, love. Yep. How can people find your work and get to you? Sure. I'm all over social media. You can find me on Facebook, Body Buddies, Instagram at BodBuds, B-O-D-B-U-D-S. And my website is www.body-buddies.com. All right. And your book? Yes, The Power Foods Lifestyle. I actually give it away for free. People just have to pay shipping. Help me out with that. So it's powerfoodslifestyle.com. And they can get to that through your website. Exactly. All right. Awesome. Well, thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you, too. All right. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. WAPAC. 2016, Piano Wires. I love the Wapak Trail Race. It is everything I dig in a race. Trees, mountains, rocks, roots, dirt, and a little blood. Nothing pretentious about this race. Good, honest, everyday trail runners show up and they run it. It's hard enough to scare off the uninitiated, but not so hard as to kill you. So I asked Steve Perro, who was at the race, to write me a description of the course, and he responded... And I quote, gnarly single track trail with long climbs and descents. Constant battle with roots and rocks. This trail is one of the more technical in the United States. Or if you take the blurb from our website, the Wapak race is 18 miles. The route is an out and back that follows the Wapak trail between New Ipswich, New Hampshire, and Ashburnham, Massachusetts. There are four major mountains in between. Barrett. New Ipswich, Pratt, and Watatic from north to south. Total climb and total descent are each at least 3,000 feet over the 18 miles. So in all fairness, my watch clocked it at a total elevation gain of around 4,000 feet, with the descent being about the same. That's still pretty good. A miles in comparison is 5,800 feet, 5,820. But that's one of the big draws for me is all the technical climbing and descending. It's a hard course, and that's why I like it. I remember one time someone posted a picture of their trail on Facebook, and I scoffed, that's not a trail. That's a dirt road. I know it's hard to imagine what technical means until you see it for yourself. So, so close your eyes. Picture this. You're running down a rough, rutted, grass-clogged fire road. And the trail ahead disappears into the trees. As you start to climb, the footing becomes irregular. There is loose dirt. There are exposed tree roots rising like wicked stairs or snares, 6 to 12 inches up out of the ground from erosion. There are big chunks of rocks, some the size of a loaf of bread, some the size of small cars jutting half exposed from the slope. The trees lean in at all crazy angles. You could reach out and touch the slope in front if you wanted to, and sometimes you do to get more leverage. The leaders run up these slopes. They bounce from foothold to foothold and high-step up the trails. Those of us in the mid-pack resort to hiking. The runners in the back, well, they rest a lot. And there's a method to the madness. Unless you're an elite, there's no sense wasting energy trying to run up the technical slopes. You lean forward, you get low, you swing your arms for momentum. When you get to the top of the mountain, the trees recede to an open expanse of brush and bedrock, 
and these are dotted with cairns and sweeping vistas of the surrounding mountains and forests. It's quite beautiful. And then you're back into the woods and you have to run down a perilous slope just like the one you ran up, roots, rocks, trees. And running down is more punishing to the quads than running up. For a mid-packer, the slopes are too steep to let yourself go. If you catch a toe and fall, it's going to hurt because there's nothing but rough rock gardens to slow you down. By the time you get to the last couple climbs and descents, your legs are mush and you're fighting to maintain some semblance of control and not kill yourself. And you will fall down. Everyone does. As soon as you get tired or start pushing faster than your feet can choose spots, you catch a toe and you go down. And usually it's just a scrape or a dirty shoulder. Sometimes it's a broken bone or a trail of blood. But that's the fun of a technical trail. It challenges you. It forces you to be present in the run. It forces you to stay in control and within your abilities. Because if you do get hurt, <laughs> you still have to get out of the woods. There are no screaming crowds lining the course. There are no friendly water stops every mile. There is only you and the mountain and whatever assistance you can draw from your fellow runners. So 15 years ago, when I first started running the WAPAC, I would actually run the majority of the course. And I can't do that anymore. I power hike up the mountains. I pick my way down. And I try to race the flats. The advantage I do have is that I know this course very well. And I know how to trail run and I know what to expect with technical trails and mountains. And I love it. So my goal going into this one was to see if I could get in under four hours and not hurt myself. You can expect to run your current marathon time over the 18 miles at Wapak. And that's true. When I was in 315 shape for a road marathon, I'd run a 320 at Wapak. But this year was a mixed bag. I ran a clock time of 4.11, but that included getting lost at the end and adding a half a mile or more and having to stop and work out a cramp very late in the race. If you take those two events out, I was probably spot on four hours. I felt fine, and my heart rate was wonderful the whole time. The only time I got my heart up into zone four was power hiking up the backside of Watetic. Other than that, my engine was basically idling the whole time. The course is so technical, you really can't stretch it out and race. So I didn't have quite enough fitness. <laughs> I suffered a bit in the last five and a half miles coming up the backside of Pratt, which is the steepest climb on the way back. It was a struggle to keep moving forward. And then I had those piano wire cramps. I have never had a problem with cramps. So this must be another of the indignities of being an increasingly senior runner. They call these piano wire cramps because they run up that muscle on the inside of your legs, your, your quad, the inside, and it's brutal. <laughs> I had to sit down with a quarter mile to go and wait for it to stop spasming. It's really painful. So now I know what people mean when they talk about those debilitating cramps at the end of a race. I was eating Enduralites, but maybe I was sweating more than I thought, or I just wasn't fit enough to run over four mountains twice. But I lived. The race was a success on a nice, dry summer day. We ended up with around 97 runners, I think. Everybody had fun. Nobody died. The last time I ran the full race, I think, was in 2007 or 2008 when I was training for the Vermont 50. And I think I ran a 320 at that time, but I was in really good shape back then. I wasn't in that kind of shape this year. I decided to wear my Road Hoka Clifton's because those are the only shoes I own right now that I trust. And they were super comfy on the trails, but the big, sticky, oversized outsoles kept catching on the rocks. And I took a lot of stumbles. I took my most interesting fall coming back right before the climb up Pratt on the way back. So I was coming up the trail, running alone. I had just pushed the Wate to climb and descent pretty hard on the way back, the second climb, because I knew the only good section of running was between Watetic and Pratt, which is a shallow downhill fire road that meanders past the aid station for at least three quarters of a mile, if not more. So I pushed it a bit there and used that momentum. And when I started over the ridge to the Pratt climb, 
I could feel that piano wire starting to act up, which was a bit worrisome with five miles and three mountains to go. And there was a family of hikers coming down the trail towards me. And when I looked up to eyeball them, like you do, I caught a toe and face planted. And when I got up, I was cramping. And I had ripped a couple of nice holes in uh, two fingers of my left hand. And this poor family was horrified. I'm dancing around on one foot, wincing and bleeding all over the place. They're like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a trail race until unless you bleed a little bit. So the holes in my fingers were a pain because every time I grabbed a tree or did anything with my hand, they'd start bleeding. And I had no place to wipe the blood except my bib number or my shorts, which were wet with sweat and covered in dirt because I was running shirtless with just my water pack. And I carry my bottle in my left hand, and it got all slippery with blood. So, I mean, I wasn't hurt at all. It was just a bad place to get a puncture wound. You know, it's like the same place they stick you when you, you get a blood test, right? The end of your fingers. So you have to, you know, you'd have to be in real good shape to race this course from end to end. I just wanted not to die. <laughs> and I accomplished that mission. Uh, I certainly wasn't as well-trained as I should have been, and I suffered a bit for it, especially on the downhills. My quads were sore for a full four days afterwards. But it was a blast. I'm glad I was in a position to run the WAPAC this year. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have nibbled your way on protein, vegetables, and carbohydrates through to the end of episode 4-348 of the Run Run Live podcast. Are you full? Are you satiated? Do you have to unbutton your jeans so all that good info will fit in? Hmm. I've got a short turnaround now, and I'm heading out to do the Spartan Beast in Killington, Vermont this weekend. I'm dragging my youngest daughter along, and she's going to do the sprint on Sunday. I was I was looking at the instructions, and it, I'm like, Really? Anyone who starts the beast after noon needs to carry a headlamp and two glow sticks. And they pull you off the course if you haven't finished by 9 p.m. Really? I have no intention of being on that course for nine hours. I might be missing something. We'll see. So coaches still try to talk me out of it so I can focus on the Portland Marathon on October 9th. Now, what I like about him is he's old school. He thinks every race is an Olympic qualifier. But I'm at the point in my life where I have to try new things and have some fun too. And that being said, if I can maintain this diet and come out of Portland strong, I'll look at the calendar and I'll see if there isn't something serious I could train for. I've got to figure out if we are going to do the Grot Marathon again this year. Got to sort that out. So I know many of you are running your goal races now or over the next few weeks. And good luck with those. Remember, the hay is in the barn and there's nothing you can do in the last couple weeks to make up for lost training. Don't try to cram it in. You're in your taper. And as you are in your taper, as you taper toward your race, you can use a couple of things we talked about here to help you stay sane, to help you get ready. As your training load gets lighter, you have an opportunity and you have the time to do some of the fine-tuning things. So think about practicing that meditation and visualization that we talked about. Work in some easy yoga every couple of days to stretch and strengthen that machine. Get it ready for the race. And do some meal planning around your taper weeks to go into that race lean and strong and with a lot of energy. That's how you apply the tools from the conversations we have here. See how that goes? And that's a real trick. With all the content available to you, you're like the DJ. You are the creative genius for your own life, your own mix. You take all this stuff, you take it in, and you mix it up to make your own sound, your own movie, and craft your own story. Just make sure you get the ending right, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed. So hard it made him cry. Two, three, four. On with the show. On with the show. On with the show.